0: I'm Peter Jones and welcome to the Foyn Jones Show. This podcast will be combining personality, passion and our love of football alongside industry and recruitment news. Our amazing guests will share their personal stories and also explain what they get up to when they're not at work. In the show, we're going to be joined by Ian Smith, who's going to be talking about a life in retail the Hatton Garden job, being retired at just 55 years old, and his undying love for Middlesbrough Football Club. Welcome to the, uh, I don't know, it's the its the trial for Jones podcast. It's the first one we're doing, and I'm joined today by Ian Smith. Now, Ian, we've known each other as LinkedIn Connections for, for ages and ages. We share a lot of banter about football, but today we're going to be talking not about me, mainly about you. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing
1: well. Thank you, Peter. I'm uh, delighted to be joining you on this call this morning. Excellent. It's like the pilot. It's, it is. Like, it's like pilot one. So we're going to we're gonna have some fun, but we're
0: going to bring it to life, I think, in a, in a way which the Foy Jones show or podcast show will be all about. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring people's personality, their passions inside of work and outside of work together with their love for a football team or their love for sport, because... You know, if you work for a business or you want to be employed by a business, the brand helps. But sometimes that person who inspires you and that person you work for, what they're about that makes a difference. So we're going to learn all about you, Ian Smith. Oh, sounds
1: interesting. Yeah. So, so come on in. So so introduce yourself to the listeners, mate. Who are you? Yeah, my name's Ian Smith. I live in the beautiful city of York. I'm 55 years old. And uh, I suppose many people will say I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm actually retired. Um, not lucky because I was born in Middlesbrough, which we'll come on to shortly, but lucky because I am <laughs> retired at 55. And let's talk about your life in retail. Where did it all begin? Yeah, well, it was funny. The very first conversation I had when I was about 12 or 13 was with my grandfather when I first started to talk about a career or a yeah. job or what to do in my life. My grandfather worked for British Steel at Dormand Long in Middlesbrough and it was a job for life then, prior to to obviously the the, the steelworks shutting down and redundancy. And he said to me, and he always used to call me son, even though he was my grandfather, he said, pick a, a career, not a job, but pick a career that's maybe always going to be around for, forever, for years to come. So I said, well, give me some examples, granddad. He said, well, you could become an undertaker. And I said, what? He said, become an undertaker. He said, people are always going to die. They're always going to need undertakers. We're always going to have to bury or cremate people. I said, come on, granddad. I said, we don't do undertaking. What else could I do? He said, well, shopping. People are always going to shop. He said, whatever format, whether it be for food, whether it be for goods, you name it, it's going to be there forever. He said it might change, but it would be there. And that got me thinking round about the age of 12 or 13 that actually retail might not be a bad thing. Went through my schooling, got my O levels, went through uh, college, got my A levels. And one of the subjects I actually took was geology. And uh, I was quite interested in the sort of the geology, geography type subjects. And then I got an opportunity through the careers at college to apply for a job as a diamond sorter and valuer. At De Beers. exciting. I'm interested in this here. I uh, knew. You, you yeah. know, I always thought diamond smuggling, you know, would be great on the CV. But diamond sorter and value at Hatton Garden in London because I had my geology A-level and I thought, there we go cutting it short went to london on three occasions had two interviews on different wednesdays went down on the train got the last train back from london and uh, you know spent some time there i was ultimately offered the position and uh, i even went down i had my medical with the company which was done at uh, stamford bridge down at chelsea's football ground cuz mm-hmm. and garden chelsea i'm not a, a, that knowledgeable of london but it was all close so, enough
0: so it's about a two and a half mile stroll, mate. Um, you know, right. if you drive it, it could take you two hours. But if you go if you go under the ground, it won't take you too long. Interestingly oh. enough, Uh When was that? What year was
1: that? That was 1982.
0: So in 1982, I was seven years old, mate. When you had yep. your
1: medical, you were about a 10-minute walk from my front door. That's incredible. But there it you shows go. you how small the world can be, that we're talking now, and you would, that's your neck of the woods, <laughs> and I could have ended up. And, and ultimately... it it all became life-changing. I went down, I found an apartment, found a house. It was going to cost me £25 a month for a room in a four-bedroomed house. So I don't know how that equates to to modern times, but at that time it was a lot of money per month just for the room itself without anything else. Anyway, at the same time that I was doing that, I had an application as a trainee manager for Woolworths on the go, But Woolworths was being taken over in 1982. So they put all the recruitment on hold of the trainee managers. Now, at the time, the reason I wanted to join Woolworths because it was the best trainee management scheme available. It was better than Marks and Spencer's, better than the top names. But Woolworths was a top name. Back in 82, 83, as everybody, I'm probably sure that listens or sees this, will appreciate yeah, just, just to say, like, like
0: many people who went to my school and, and grew up in my estate, we all got caught with our hands in the pick and mix,
1: mate. So, Woolworth, where did that Yeah, mean? so I basically had to toss a coin. Was it leave home from Middlesbrough, which, as you know, is pretty far north. We talk a different language up here in terms of the accent. Go down to London. And try and get myself a career. The career it had been a diamond sorter and value would have been phenomenal. Would have involved South Africa, Canada, America, world travel, <laughs> and I could, I, God knows what I might have been doing throughout my career. Everybody might call me crazy, but I went the Woolworths route. Yeah. Um, don't know why. got instinct. I don't know, but I, but I did it, and and I never looked back. And that was the start of my retail career. I started on January the tenth, nineteen eighty-three. In the Woolworths on Stockton High Street as a trainee manager. Stockton mm-hmm. on Tees is sort of a sister town to Middlesbrough, very close to each yeah. other. That's how it all started. And uh, I actually became a store manager with, with Woolworths. Um, I think it was at the age of 22. I was very young because um, I had a very good education through the training program, was seen as a high flyer. I put myself out there as fairly mobile. And I was given the opportunity to do that. Um, then in 1987, uh, whilst I was uh, working actually up in Scotland uh, in a town called Johnston, which is a suburb of Glasgow, I went into a and q store and uh, in Pearsley and I was doing a little bit of shopping up there. And I happened to speak to some of the staff and the staff were really positive about B&Q. And B&Q was a sister company to mm-hmm. Woolworths. And But B&Q was, was getting bigger. They were opening big units, out-of-town units. Woolworths was obviously High Street, and they, they were having a bit of a changeover, and they'd been taken over. Anyway, again, cutting a long story short, I decided to apply internally to B&Q. I got the, the job. They offered me a position as a, as a unit manager, and I started with B&Q in 1987, kept my length of service, kept my pension rights and everything so it was a great move for me an expanding growing company diy wasn't very knowledgeable of it but if you're a retailer whether it's tins of beans tins of paint clothes on a peg retailing has a fundamental basics that we can all take from job to job so diy was the next thing for me and we were running stores which had 30 40,000 products in them in the b&q stores Uh, Started in the red sheds, B&Q, various different towns. B&Q then, in around about the 1991-92 era, opened up a concept called B&Q Depot, which was sort of based on uh, sort of the American process principle of Home Depot, uh, big large sheds out of town. uh, Became manager, general manager, uh, acting regional manager, and basically moved around, did an awful lot of jobs then became warehouse because b&q then opened the big orange warehouses which is the next one again so at at that time when they opened warehouses we had three concepts we had red sheds we had orange depots and we had um the b&q warehouses and i continued that all the way through loved my retailing my predominant role within b&q as a as a unit manager just wasn't running a, a unit i actually had the privilege of opening and uh revamping seven b and q stores and warehouses so it was quite a, a a challenging role and a challenging job so i changed towns and jobs quite regularly sort of once on average every 15 18 months to two years but loved it it was just in my blood retailing is about your people whether it be your customers that come through the door and we were serving you know, up to twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 customers a week at times, whether it's your staff and your people that work for you, the contractors that work from the cleaners. It was all about people, how you motivated your staff and actually how you motivated your customers to buy your products and enjoy coming to B&Q and passing competitors to come through your door. Loved it. I won a number of accolades, which I was very proud about. Won Best Store Competition with Stockton Store in 2002, out of the entirety of b q was nominated and was runner-up as finalist in uh, Retail Store Manager of the Year in sort of 2001-2003. So my purple patch in retail was from around about 1992 to 2005, was an era when it was very much about growth, positivity, store openings, revamps, big units, up to 400 staff in a store, thousands of customers and lots of money you know back in 2002 you know we were taking in diy a million pound a week in in this in the stockton branch that i was operating um and it was just a buzz from the minute you open the doors till the minute you close them
0: i mean the, the retailing in your blood is is kind of coming through so yeah you know that's that's that there's a passion there and almost that gun for up, mate you know yeah. the you know, yeah. 18 months here, tick. We've got a project yeah. here that needs a refurbishment. It's a big yeah. box. You know, it's a superstore. We're going to go there. So that's that's really brought to life. So what was your last position in retail? But, yeah, you-
1: my last position, I uh, when I left B&Q in um, 2011, um, I have to say LinkedIn is a fantastic tool. And I know that um, you're using LinkedIn through your recruiting. And I love your videos and your posts and your messages and the positivity the freshness and the difference that you bring in and actually i got my job uh, i went to dubai to work through linkedin i got a connection on linkedin i was visible on linkedin uh, a recruiter from dubai contacted me from the landmark group i had a number of skype interviews and uh, ended up getting a job as head of retail for a new concept store that was going to be a home box for landmark and i went over to uh, to dubai in 2013 and worked with the buyers the um the ceo of homebox and we set up and planned the stores did the blueprints what stock it was going to range and how it was going to target the market in dubai and uh, and helped them and, and assisted them to do that over the sort of a, a a nine ten month period i then changed jobs in dubai which again, hey, I've got just before just before yeah.
0: you finish your dubai journey
1: as a as a fella from um,
0: as a fella from the northeast east and the freezing cold, get on out there. Um, it was a bit of a shock
1: to the system, as you can imagine. Back to, um, back to fifty, mate, eh? Back to fifty and fifty degrees. It yeah. was, but I loved it. it. It was it was actually an incredible sort of feeling, actually stepping out and being warm for a lot of people who think too warm, as you can imagine. But Dubai's is an amazing country. It's air conditioned everywhere. Clearly, if you're outside, it's very hot, but you actually do spend the vast majority, if not 90 percent of your time indoors. And it's absolutely from a climate point of view. No, no problem at all. I do remember one evening, though, I jumped in my car after finishing work about 730 at night and the dashboard was showing 47 degrees at 730 at night. And uh, I took the photograph on my phone and WhatsApped it to all my friends back in the UK, saying just leaving. It it was dark and it was forty-seven degrees. Um, But I think if you're going from place to place, wearing you know trousers, shirt, socks, shoes, it can be a bit uncomfortable. A lot of people think of Dubai as sitting by the pool in your 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 swim shorts in and out the pool. That is that's doable as well. When did you when did you get back from Dubai? Did you, did you did you? yeah i got back in uh, 2015 february 2015 i did two years in dubai came back in 2015 and i'd made the decision to have a gap year i didn't have one at the start of my life as a student yeah. so i thought it would be quite interesting being sort of 52 year old and having a gap year before deciding what i would do again within the uk retailing was having challenging times so in the gap year i decided i was going to be a dad because my family stayed here in the UK whilst I was in Dubai, but they would come over on the half terms, fly over, had an apartment, so I would see them every seven, eight weeks on average anyway. and the girls loved it. Um, I've got two younger I've got four daughters, but my youngest daughter's nine. my next one up is twelve, and between them they've been to Dubai you know twelve to fifteen oh, times okay. each on on the holidays. But for me, having spent two Christmases, Abroad in Dubai and working on Christmas Day while my family were at home, I found that very challenging and very tough. So, a year of spending time with the family, dad's taxi, helping out with the sports, doing all the things that they love, been at home, spending the Christmases at home was what it was all about for me. What I then did, uh, and I, we've chatted a lot over the last years, but I was very, very seriously ill in the uh, October of 2015. Um, I won't go into too many details, but I spent a month in hospital and that was the changing and the tipping point, Peter, to making the big decision that at 55, I was definitely going to retire. I'd already worked through my life on the vision of finishing at 55, but at 52, I still had sort of two and a half, three years to go. So I decided I wasn't gonna look for corporate work I was going to rehabilitate myself, get myself healthy again. And what I actually did, I went from being sort of working in Dubai, international, head of retail, working for best European, you know, and one of the world's best companies in B&Q, to delivering leaflets door to door and walking 10,000 to 20,000 steps a day to, to become fit and healthy yeah. again. And I did that through um, through Betterwear, which is now... Uh, finished as a company and local link which is a local magazine in the York area that goes house to house that is full of trades and people and helps people out if they've got a problem and I did this for for two years as a fill-in to being 55 earlier this year I loved it I was out in all weathers I delivered in snow rain heel hail sleet sunshine t-shirts shorts did the lot and uh, it was The best part of my rehabilitation and you know what and i often say this to people not many people i know would allow themselves the opportunity to do that it wasn't a task it wasn't difficult it was something that gave me an income per month a small amount of income but it got me fit and healthy as well and in between times i played my golf as well and that was when the decision is at 55 the health issue, luckily having the funding which we can come on to in place to be able to retire and how I achieve that, and saying, yeah, this is it. I want to have a life where I spend it with my family. Well, that's, that's a powerful way
0: to end that, that, that first part, mate. And, yeah. you know, just, just in a way, what you've encapsulated is, you know, you, you, with the passion you speak about retail, it's easy to say, see it's in your blood. But, you know, you've know, you, you taken this on a journey there which uh, which which potentially could have begun in Hatton Garden, but it began in, it began in Woolworths in Stockton. Yep. You've gone through the the B and Q the Kingfisher Empire. You've been headhunted in a way to to an international position in Dubai. Yeah, sacrifices for the greater good. You know, you've you've come back to the UK. You've had health issues. You've rehabilitated yourself, and you've arrived, or you've arrived at a point where at 55 you are retired. We know retail is in your blood and I know that Middlesbrough Football Club are in your blood and your passion for goals in your blood. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about Middlesbrough and um, and yeah. your love for the club and, and what,
1: what the borough means to you, mate. The the borough means everybody. I, I was born and bred in Middlesbrough and I was born in a hospital that was a stone's throw away from Erson Park. Um, my mum stood on the terrace nine months pregnant with me at the Holgate end of Middlesbrough with an... She was a, a tomboy, was my mum, and she used to stand with all the guys. Uh, she sadly passed away now, but uh, she was called Do- Dorothy. And all the guys would say to her in January 1963, when she was stood on the terrace, Dorothy, what the hell are you doing here? You can't be stood on this terrace. You're going to give birth. Watch the match, and I was born on January the 30th, 1963, about days after she stood on the terrace at the... I was nearly born on the terrace there, Peter. And for for guys who are passionate about football, when your mum stood nine months carrying you, you've got to follow the tradition. She actually waited till I was four in 1967 to take me to my first football match. And it was the very last match of the season in 1967 when Middlesbrough got promoted um, by beating Oxford 4-1 in the last match of the season... And apparently she told my my granddad that if I behaved and if I enjoyed it, she'd get me a season ticket the next year. I didn't know this, but I was the ultimate Did, did you behave? Did you enjoy it? I behaved apparently impeccably. Yeah. I sat and munched on my sweets. I read the match programme and I cheered every time we scored four goals and jumped up and down. I got my season ticket the next season and basically... For the next 40 years, I was a season ticket holder at Urson Park and then the season ticket holder when we moved to the Riverside in 1995. So I have seen all of those names that you mentioned in the beginning and many, many more. My favourite moments are obviously the highlights, as you can Mm -hmm. imagine, when Jack Charlton took over the club in sort of 72, 73, and we got promoted to the then first division. Uh, we were incredible. It was two point. It was I think it was the last season. It was two points for a win. And Middlesbrough won Division One, which is now the championship, by eighteen points I believe or fifteen points. It was a huge gulf. Yeah, we were yeah. such a good team, and we had Graham Soonis in midfield, who obviously went on to great things with with Liverpool. We had Bobby Murdoch, who had won the European Cup with Celtic in sixty seven, was in Middlesbrough's midfield. He was for everybody past his sell-by date, but he wasn't. And this is another learning about talking. Jack Charlton brought him in, mature, intelligent, fantastic footballer. He was a little overweight. His legs were gone, but all he did, he stood in the centre circle within that that diameter of the centre circle and put the ball on a 10 pence piece.
0: When, when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to be
1: number eight and centre midfield for Fulham. Um, it didn't work out that way, but go on, c- carry on. Big Borough moments. Then we obviously nearly uh, folded as a football club around about 1987. The, the gates were locked. The guys were training in parks, jumpers for goalposts. We played our first match at Hartlepool's ground, who kindly lent us the ground to play a match. And basically, Middlesbrough nearly didn't exist. And the current chairman, um, Steve Gibson, who was a very young man at the time, in his well, probably in his twenties, um, was part of a consortium that rescued Middlesbrough. So you can imagine the what we went through as fans, thinking that we weren't going to exist anymore. This was a club that had been going since the eighteen hundreds. So that was what might have been a low point was a high point and part of a discussion. That actually, you know, through the the difficulties and the challenges, we came out of that. And sort of Bruce Rioch was the manager then. You'll probably know him as one of your rivals, as an ex Arsenal manager. I don't, um, I don't class Arsenal as a real rival of Fulham, mate. But
0: uh, yeah. we played him. We've played him since we got to the Premier League. But Joe, uh, you, know, you mentioned Steve Gibson. I mean, interesting story. I met him once. Um, I was a guest of um, Simon Morgan when I was coaching at Fulham, and um, I was in the boardroom and Al Ed and it, it, was, it was it was amazing thing. And yeah. uh, Steve Gibson, you know, he just you know, just literally bumped into him getting a coffee and. Um, you know, I said, "Oh, you know, we shook hands." I mean, I doubt Steve remembers this. To be fair, you know, it was a—I uh, I don't think he remembers it like I did. But, but he was a gentleman. He said, "You know," I said, "Oh, you join down here. I love coming to Craven Cottage. It's a real football club by the river." He said, "It's just—it's just a real—it's a proper football club to come to." And um, this was around Jose Mourinho's special one time at Chelsea when he was uh, I suppose, 2005 something. like that, When he was the—you know—he was the man. And. Um, yeah. Jose walked in with his little entourage, and the and you had you had Alan Pardew. there was um, uh, people from Sky there, you know, there it, it was it was a lineup of big football personalities in there without over-name popping. But that room went quiet when Jose walked in, and he walked up, he shook Steve Gibson's hand, Alfie's hand, and kissed al on both cheeks, and then walked out of the room, and you were like, That guy's gold dust, you know, when he was when yeah. he was at the height of his special one. But yeah, he was, as he left, he sort of walked past me and a couple of people, and he actually went, "Good to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of the game." And for another for me, I don't, I can't remember the result. I think Fulham might have nicked it. It was a midweek game, but right. he just come across, and every Borough fan I speak to says the guy really cares. You know, oh, he's,
1: massively. he's part of that club and part of that community, isn't he? Massively, we, we we're very lucky. I hope he never ever clearly sells the club. There's he's, we've been offered many many millions by many different nationalities across the world but he's always held on to it he's yeah. a Middlesbrough boy Middlesbrough lad he understands the club and everything he wants is success for Middlesbrough well, and I've, runs- s-
0: I've, s- I've seen fun of me and I've seen them play at Ayrson Park I've seen them play at the Riverside yeah uh, I think that for me when you travel that far north you know and you go to these communities it's it's yeah. one town, one club. One city, two clubs. Or you know, In some of the cities, it's one city, one club. Yeah. It's, it's very different because, you know, coming from South West London, Fulham were my local team. You know, they, they weren't my closest team. Chelsea were closer as, as, as you walked. But yeah. my granddad was Johnny Ains and Fulham. And that's where I went that way. But you just see how big the club is as part of the community. Yeah. And the difference a few good results can make. That feel-good factor. Yeah. Talking about the feel-good
1: factor. Give me your three best... Middlesbrough supporting moments three best Uh, 73-74 when Middlesbrough won the league under Jack Charlton because I was only sort of 10 year old then Um, going to Wembley for the very first time as a football fan so I'd never been to see any other matches in about I think it was 91 when we played Chelsea do you know the bane of our lives Chelsea Uh, and we played them in the Zenith Data Cup Final Sadly, we lost with a Tony DeRigo goal. Tony De Rigo. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, he was a he was a good player, was Tony DeRigo. Nice fella Stuart, as well, you know. Stuart, Stuart, Stuart
0: Pearce's Pierce's uh, reserve, wasn't he, for the yeah. uh, nineteen ninety World Cup and, and yeah,
1: yeah, good, good. good. In, in today's game he'd be a wing back, wouldn't he? De Rigo? He, would. yeah, he was he was probably one of your early wing backs in reality. Yeah. He had a cap I- he w- he would fit into the modern game.
0: Yeah, when Chelsea got relegated, they played you, played you boys in the, um, the it, oh. they played you boys and went down. They went down, you went up. But when, yeah. probably one of your moments there. But when you go into when they come back up, they had Stevie Clark on the right wing and Dorigo on the left and uh, Background Roberts and people. But they,
1: you know, they they were too good for the division. Yeah. What, division two, as it was then, really. Yeah. Well, a lot of people might not remember, Peter. You've just brought an interesting fact up there about the playoffs, that back in the day when the playoffs were first introduced, I think it was a third bottom club in the top tier went into the playoffs with the three clubs from the uh, the, the division below, yeah. like the championship. And that's how Middlesbrough got to play Chelsea. And we actually obviously beat them and sent Chelsea down. And we went into the, the first division as it was then, I believe, and, um, yeah, and then, obviously, the chip 89, 89 wasn't it? 89, 88, 89? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was... I was very, yeah, yeah,
0: I've got to confess, mate, even as a Fulham fan, I was about... Well, was I? So, I know, 13, 14 years old, mate. I was at that game. Well,
1: I, was I couldn't get a ticket. It was, I could uh, get a a ticket the, I'd have been stood yeah, with you. Yeah, mate, that was. It was an incredible match. Um, I remember Pallister and Mowbray were our centre-backs. RIOC was the manager... And uh, it was just the most incredible result to beat them over the two legs, because there were two two legs then in that day, and to actually go to actually be promoted and go up was just incredible. And obviously then they changed all the system.
0: I went to the game with
1: a load of kids,
0: a load of mates from my flats and school, and you know of, we were Fulham boys, so we go and watch Fulham. Occasionally go and watch Chelsea. Went to that game, and uh, I wasn't sharing the heartbreak because I was a yeah. Fulham fan. But the you couldn't not get absorbed into that but that was when Stamford Bridge had the greyhound track and the car yes. and pitch and it's in the yeah. dark days mate and you we, we saw some examples of the dark old days of football after that game didn't we it was uh, yeah it quite was um,
1: quite notorious was the game for the the, the poor the bad side of um of what used to happen back in the day and you know I'm really pleased that you know now Obviously, that's all changed. It's 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 less problematic, let's say, than so it used the, to be. What's the final
0: moment then? We've got the promotion. We've got the Simod Cup or ZDS Final. What's the what's the
1: final one? I'm going to combine two because there was actually four, but I'm a bit sneaky <laughs> like that for yeah. dinner And well, winning the um the 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 Carling Cup at uh, Cardiff uh, in 2004 was. The most amazing event that was the first trophy middlesbrough ever won and um it was just the most incredible you can imagine being at a club like middlesbrough to win uh the, the cup was phenomenal and i'm tying it in with number four which was oh, when man. we reached the uefa cup final in 2006 in eindhoven yeah. under steve mclaren which once again, I know it's something that Fulham then emulated under Roy Hodgson, so we've got something in common there. Thank okay. oh. you. Yeah. And it was just like we, we went to Eindhoven. Sadly, we met on the day a team called Seville or Sevilla. Um, yeah. who people didn't realize just how good they were and how good they were going to be for the next 15 years. Uh, they, yeah. Yeah. Literally, we, we lost 4-1. I think it was a travesty, the, the, the score, because when we were 2-1 down, obviously, cup final, we were going for it and let two, two leaky goals in at the end. But Sevilla were marvellous. But the whole experience, the whole event of that, going to Eindhoven, joining the Sevilla supporters, you know, in the squares and everything, was just phenomenal. So that probably, of everything, was the most incredible experience I've had in my life, you know, with Middlesbrough. Fantastic.
0: Got to say, mate, you know, I've been on that journey with Fulham. You know, I, I never thought I'd see Juventus and Fulham on the same scoreboard, and we yeah. beat them. And and we went somehow. We got to that magical final. That that that, that amazing journey. And we bumped into an Atletico Madrid team that had uh, a young David de Gea, a young Sergio Aguero, a, mm. a, a, an experienced Diego Forlan. Yeah. And we With your with your old keeper, we were about. Ninety odd seconds away from a penalty shootout, and um, yeah. there, there was something quite romantic about losing. You know, yeah. and uh, I mean, you know, I sum up my football moments. The greatest moment for me with Fulham was getting out of the bottom league. You yeah. know, with with a team of average players, and then I look at promotion to the Premiership the, or the Keegan years, then the Segala to, to the Premier League, and you know, there's so many different things, but. I shared something that you did. I watched my team play at Wembley in the playoffs and, um, yep. and we won and no one's going to take that away. Now let's, let's talk about, you know, your your retirement, Ian. You know, yeah. what, what, just talk to me about how that's happened quickly and, and what you're getting up to, your golf and, and how, yep. you know. How it, how it
1: is really? Yeah, how I came to be retired. Um, whilst I was a training manager at Woolworths, I sat having a coffee with an auditor that was auditing one of the stores, and I just happened to say to him, I think I was twenty at the time. Can you give me a couple of hints and tips that would would be useful for me in retail in life going forward? Because he was literally going to retire. I think three weeks after the audit, he was sixty five at the time, and he said, "I'll I'll give you just two tips." He said when you get to 21 join the pension scheme and when the company ever offers a share save put what you can into the share save and uh and i said is that your best advice he says yeah he said because then you'll be able to retire and retire with a good financial situation so basically, I listened to him. I joined the pension scheme in 2021. 20, uh, it was a final salary pension scheme. It was a 5% uh, donation, pretty similar to what people are all aware of. I don't need to go into details. And I just kept it going through thick and thin. And when the share saves came up, the very first one, I got a chance. I put £10 in because that was all I could afford per month. And each year, one came out, I put some more in till eventually I was paying the max in. But it took me about six or seven years before I was up to that. But effectively, Peter, it's just called salary sacrifice. Yeah. So I salary sacrifice from the age of twenty twenty one, 21. And while you're salary sacrificing, you don't realise because it's taken away at source. I got my net money and I lived off my net money. While my pension money, my share save money was working for me. So every time that the share saves matured, I was able to take some money out and live and use that. The pension was just growing and growing, and with compound interest, final salary pension schemes, it was just a platinum-plated gold nest egg. And then in 2015, I want to when you I was give a good- a round of applause here, I want to give Thank- you that like round of applause. Well done, mate. Thank you. And then at 2015, the government and the chancellor did the Pension Reform Act, which was like a double bubble because it allowed you the opportunity to move your funds from your final salary pension scheme to Uh, another option where you could invest your money and do so so effectively you they had to give you a settlement amount to come out of it and obviously mine was considerably good having spent so much time in it and I was able to do that and that cemented my opportunity to retire at 55 with a pension and an income that actually is effectively matching what my working income was so what I now do with my time is I'm dad. I'm granddad because I have a nine-month-old grandson. I have four daughters. So I now have a grandson who is going to be a Middlesbrough fan because my daughter, who is 27 now, who's, who's had little Ollie, uh, was with me at Cardiff when we won the uh, the, the Carling Cup. So she loves Borough. And uh, so he's going to be that. I am also would love him to be a golfer, Peter, because I love my golf. I never got the chance to play golf through my career because – been in retail i was working every weekend or three weekends in four long hours 12 hour days so and with having a family as well it would have been irresponsible to have uh, taken up golf now i play golf and i've managed over the last sort of few years to come down to a 14 handicap which I know a lot of people who might listen or watch this and might think, "Oh, 14? Well, that's not very good." Well, to me, it's blooming marvelous, and I'm okay. really happy with it. So you
0: know what? That, that's that's suggesting you can hit the ball tee to green, and you're playing. You, it's game management, stroke management. Yeah. It? Because, yeah. You know, and yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm still I, on I the up. Play as much as I would love to. I, you know, it's always that time work life balance thing, but yeah. uh, you know. I, I follow you on LinkedIn and we're connected. I, I know you're out in all weathers. I see oh, you. Yeah. I see your societies, your committees, where you're playing. And that, yeah. that handicap's going to come down. But do you know what? It kind of don't matter because you're only as good as your next shot, and, it, and uh, golf does that, doesn't it? You totally remember the good shot, don't you? It's the best leveler in life is playing yeah. golf because you every, can walk every, off one round, round. Every round of golf you play on, at one stage you hit one shot which is good as Justin Rose. Yes. You know, yeah. Maybe i out of the for me out of, out of the 90 I'll
1: hit, but yeah. you, you now won, don't you? And it just gives you that, oh. that, I can do it. It's the best feeling in the world yeah. because, as you well know, and other people will, in a round of golf, you also have the 5, 6 to 10 to fifteen, twenty shots that oh, yeah. are, are awful. But I love the game. And what I've been able to do is combine my passion for playing golf with doing a lot of voluntary work at my yeah. golf club, which is Pike Hills Golf Club in York. So I do some voluntary work there. I help with uh, arranging uh, dinners and events. We've got one on the 17th Saturday, the 17th evening, which I've organized. I organize the Rabbits Open Day in July, which is July 5th next year. So I do a lot of voluntary stuff there. And I also, if people are interested in sort of doing sponsorship, uh, sponsoring a tea or a hole or um, I've just been doing some work we have a club diary so I've been getting some uh, adverts for the club diary
0: so you're bringing your business experience into yeah activity and you're adding value mate. I mean giving back The are being retired you know that they're having the maturity of mind in your early 20s or late teens to to do the salary sacrifice to take the share options it's positioned you in an amazing place and an enviable place to to many who will be listening yeah. Many people live paycheck to paycheck or salary to salary and you you know you you hear the other side of that of that decision making. Yeah. And what what it also says to me is that you know you're you're a working class lad from a working class community. You've kept your team, you've worked your way up with and the other thing that stands out there's longevity of service in in every every company you've been with, because taking those shares after share saves year after year. Longevity of service gives you that opportunity. Yes. Um, you, you've shared your football and your, you know, your, and let's be honest, like supporting my team, it's a roller coaster, but there are more lows. They're <laughs> yeah. so many more lows than highs. So you don't you don't support our clubs for the glory, you support yeah. them because it's what you do. And my yeah. boys like your daughters, they're dipped, they're full yeah. of choice. We go together. You know, someone coming into retail, how do you see their future looking in 20 years from now? If they're in their first, first job in a Kingfisher or in their first job in a, you know, a retail supermarket. Anyway, really, whether it's FMCG, my world of building materials, what advice would
1: you give them and how do you see the future, mate? Right. One of the first advices I give people is try and be as mobile as you can. It gives you more opportunities, more scope for growth and for promotion. And that's what I did. I was a middlesbrough born and bred lad. I was an only child. You hang on to your mum's, you know, apron strings. But at a young age, I said to my mum, look, you know, if I'm going to make it or do anything in life, I'm probably going to have to move on. And she said to me, that's fine. Your bed's always here. Give it a go. If it doesn't work out, you can always come back. I never went back. Because I kept on moving. And when and came up in retail, they'd want somebody to go from store A to store B. I would say, yeah, I'm happy to take that promotion on. I'm happy to take it. But each time you moved, I got an increase in pay. So I was moving. I was wanted. I was required. I had a capability. I'd shown and proved through those moves that I was able to do what they wanted to do. So that that's a way of increasing your your own capabilities your income importantly and gives you the opportunities when the jobs the better jobs eventually come up later in life so it's almost having a vision a five-year plan even a 10-year plan saying i know where i am now so i started at the bottom out as a training manager i was sweeping floors doing the stuff but i knew if i was flexible the opportunity would come so try and have a flexible mindset you can always come back i came back to the to the north. So a lot of the best retailers
0: I i know and I work with, you know, I, yep. I recruit we, we as a business, myself personally, we recruit with some amazing retailers. I talk to some amazing leaders, some amazing guys and girls in, in with real responsibility. And so many of them have, have worked their way up from the yep. level and they, they are transferable skills. But how do you then see, you know, the the, the industry in terms of automation, the online platform? Yeah, you know, it's a different high street that you walk down now, whether it's
1: in your part of the world or mine. The high street's very different, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And my my fear or worry is where we are with the high street at the moment. I'm I adore bricks and mortar retailing. It's it's about the experience you get walking into a store. So my advice, if people are in sort of retail or leadership or management at the moment, is to find a way of bringing your customers through those doors with innovation, with some excitement. I want to go into stores and I want to touch and feel products. I want to be motivated. I want somebody who knows the product in the store to tell me how it works, how it will benefit me, because we can all Google. I spend a lot of time on, uh, online because with Google, with, with, with everything that's available, it's so easy to find the answers yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm capable of doing that. But the best thing I love is to go into the high street stores to talk to the people, the assistants, the team that are actually delivering and selling those products. So I do, I have a fear at the moment, whether it's down to rents and rates being too high, people being greedy in terms of not giving those rental spaces the opportunity to grow and exist in the high street. We've got to find a way of regenerating high streets. And I know there's a lot of individual towns and cities doing some great things. The the online shopping, a great example for me, and it sounds a bit of a criticism of an ex-company of mine, but B and Q as a company are finding things a bit challenging at the moment and Kingfisher because online B and Q isn't where it needs to be. And I think it's behind on the online sales process. And if it's losing people coming through the doors of the bricks and mortar, it has to be nailing online and it's not doing that. So I think there's a lesson to be learned there for big companies as well. If you don't get your online ducks in a row, you're not going to secure the market, which is not going to give you the funding to maintain your bricks and mortar that is always going to exist. Peter, long after you and I are gone, there will still be shops. People will still go to the towns really interesting that because
0: you know the without an online platform no size of business is is working 24 hours a day so you need yep. you know I, I i i preach this to my team you know i want our marketing our our message our adverts our our you know our business development to be working when we're asleep and we can do that by, by making sure we're, we're we're in the right arenas and we're, we're putting it out there but i think from a personal shopping perspective right I prefer walking down a high street in and out of shops than to go in five miles out of a city into mm. a big, glossy, four-floor arena. Not not for me. I'm probably the exception because for more people, you know, you wouldn't be seeing the Westfields of the Wells arrive if they, they weren't yeah. being successful. But I kind of like the fresh air. I kind of like the going from shop to shop. And and I guess it's, you know, it's just how I am personally. And. Um, but your advice there in terms of yeah, being mobile, I get that because I made a massive relocation in my career early on, um, and I moved from West London to the Southwest, and it was a huge promotion, huge mm-hmm. opportunity. Um, I wasn't even married, but Harry, you know, Harry, Harry was nine months old, yep. you know, it, and it was a real gamble. But but it worked off and really helped my career accelerate. So I get that, and I just want to want to thank you really because you've been. You've been really candid and really honest about yourself. From my point of view, Ian, as a as a pilot episode, you know, I mean, you've set the bar really high. You've been a pleasure, mate. So absolutely fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Peter. Take care. Take care, mate. So that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Foyne Jones by visiting our website or connecting with me on LinkedIn. We are Foyne Jones. This is what we do.